Starting this summer, Studio Ghibli Fest 2017 brings six animated classics from director Hayao Miyazaki to select cinemas nationwide. <laughs> Hello everybody, welcome to Manga Mavericks at Movies, the only movie podcast that takes April Fools seriously, very seriously. You thought we were done releasing all of our backlog reviews that we recorded in 2017. You were mistaken, very mistaken. In 2017, after successful screenings of both Spirited Away, the previous October, and Princess Mononoke earlier in January, G-Kids announced Ghibli Fest, a six-month-long theatrical re-release event featuring six classic Studio Ghibli films from June to November, starting with My Neighbor Totoro and ending with Howl's Moving Castle. At the time, I was elated. Believe it or not, there were several Ghibli films I hadn't seen yet, so I was excited for the chance to have my first time with them be a theatrical experience. But as we were watching the movies, we noticed something... odd. There's some... weirdness to these Ghibli films. Some strange messages that we hadn't seen anyone mention and were caught off guard by. Miyazaki's anime... wasn't a mistake. At first, we brushed this off as unintentional goofiness, joking about the absurdity of it all. But the more we watched these movies, the more we realized that the things we were seeing in Miyazaki's anime weren't mistakes. They were there intentionally, and there was a conspiracy at work to cover up the sinister subtext shown on screen. The more we discussed these films, the more we realized we were in over our heads. We couldn't risk releasing these podcasts lest we incur Miyazaki's wrath and our own demise. So instead, we quietly released a few of the podcasts on our YouTube channel where they wouldn't garner much attention in hopes that the few who did listen to them would take heed and spread the word of the Ghibli conspiracy. Alas, it's been nearly a year since we bravely posted those reviews online and nothing has been done. Ghibli Fest is continuing for its third year in a row, showing no signs of stopping in their insidious efforts to brainwash the youths of America. We have to take a stand and let the truth be known. Prepare to see the films of Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki in a darker light in which you've never seen before. Prepare yourself to enter the Ghibli Conspiracy, starting with the film at the center of it all, My Neighbor Totoro. 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 Toto, Totoro, 
Totoro. We went to go see my neighbor Totoro at our local AMC. As part of G Kids re-release of Ghibli movies, and we like Totoro. Totoro. It was a good movie. And I don't know the lyrics of the song that well, yeah, so um, okay. we'll stop speaking lyrically. Yeah, yeah. So but, yeah, we saw Totoro. Yeah, it was pretty good. You know what's surprising? I had not seen My Neighbor Totoro in the past 20 years of my life. Somehow. Yeah, I think I saw like... I think I saw part of the movie when I was younger, but I never watched the entire thing. It did air on Cartoon Network. I remember... Yeah, so I definitely watched it on a little bit of it on there. I remember it playing during the spring break of April 2007, but I never actually watched it. I just remember the promos for it, because they were playing, like, movies every morning yeah. during spring break. But, yeah... We've had opportunities to see this movie before, and we could have always gone out on our own to see this movie, yeah. but we just hadn't, which, you know, it's surprising because this is the most iconic Ghibli movie. At least Totoro is the most iconic Ghibli character. He's their, he's literally their icon, their mascot. Yeah, like, most, even a lot of, like, American children, like, their parents would show them Totoro as kids. Like, I know a lot of just, like, Normal teenagers who aren't into anime at all, who know of Totoro, they've watched Totoro, Totoro was like their childhood. Yeah, it's an icon of childhood, you know? That's what Totoro really represents, the innocence and magic of childhood and imagination. Yeah. Yeah, that's what the character represents, <laughs> and, you know, he's an iconic character. In Japan, they say he's as beloved as Winnie the Pooh is among British children. Huh. But, but he doesn't ha eat honey. No, but he, he doesn't go on wild adventures with his animal friends. He sort of does. Where's our Pooh Bear versus Totoro cinematic movie? <laughs> what? They're going to make a Disney Ghibli crossover cinematic universe? I don't yes. think Disney even has the rights to Ghibli films, so I guess that's not happening. Pooh Bear Totoro Civil War. <laughs> what would they fight about? I don't know. I mean, they both inhabit a forest, I guess, so you could probably do something set in a forest. Yeah, and then the final fight, Pooh will take some, like, random nuts. Totoro will be like, you can't take those nuts! My forest made those nuts! <laughs> and Pooh Bear's just gonna be like, oh, okay. He just drops the nuts and <laughs> goes away with his honey. <laughs> So, so Totoro is Iron Man. I guess. Do you hate him as much as Iron Man? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> the reason you love that scene so much is that it makes oh. Iron Man look like such a punk. That's because Iron Man is a punk. He's a terrible character in the cinematic universe. Fuck him. <laughs> but, no, I, I like Totoro. Totoro's a cool character. Yeah, Totoro is pretty cool. You know, he's cute and, like, fluffy. You know, he has this great big goofy grin that's just infectious and adorable. But, you know, I'm surprised for a movie named after him, he honestly doesn't actually appear that much in it. He's kind of just important in, I guess, the middle and then the end. Yeah, I mean, they're 
this entire movie is basically just a series of, like, vignettes in the daily life of the two kids, Satsuki and Mei. Yeah. As they move into the countryside and, you know, have to deal with the fact that their mother is in the hospital. But, you know, they go on, like, magical adventures that keep their spirits up. And, like, they're, they're so optimistic because, you know, they're cute little kids. And, honestly, I think the stars of the movie are them. And I think what makes the movie work so well is that they are so lifelike and realistic. Like, they feel like little kids. They act like how little kids do. They get excited in the same way. It's so cute when the little sister May will repeat what her big sister says and phrases. And they get, like, super excited about ghosts and goblins and, like, exploring the forest. You know? Yeah. They they feel like, you know, little kids who just have bountiful imagination and optimism. And that's what, like, is the center of the movie. It's just their, like, experiences. And Totoro is just kind of, like, the centerpiece of, like, where all their, like, fantasies and, like, adventures uh, revolve around. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he's, a, he's, like, the guardian of the forest. So... Yeah. He's kind of looking out for them in certain ways. And, like, he helps them grow the acorns. And at the end of the movie, of course, he he calls the cat bus for them. Yeah. He's, he's essentially a symbol of Mother Nature, at least for the air, like area that they live in, I guess. Yeah. I would say so. I think... How, what did you, like, feel about this movie just in terms of the structure of its plot and its characters? I mean, it's kind of a slice of life, like, ep- I guess not really episodic. Well, I guess it feels like a set of, like, episodic scenes kind of tied together into a single film. Yeah, like I said before, vignettes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I- I'm fine with it. I- the- like, for this type of story, you really need, like, an o- one long, overreaching narrative. Yeah. I think, like, the central theme of the movie is, like, you know... Imagination. Imagination, like, like childhood. Yeah, I mean, it's like... It's like the innocence of childhood. And, yeah. like, what threatens, like, the innocence is, like, the looming threat that their mother may die. And, you know, they're, they're trying to keep their spirits up, but, you know, they still have it in the back of their minds that, you know, something bad could happen. They're trying not to think about it. But, like, when they get that telegram, like, that's when things, like... That's when, like, they they can't, like, stay strong anymore, especially yeah. the big sister Sasuke, and, like, they really start breaking down, and man, the, the crying faces in this movie are, like, heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, when Sasuke, like, really opens up and cries to Granny, it's like, oh, that's, that's so heart-wrenching. You know, it definitely has a very, like, somber feeling. Yes. I wouldn't say somber, but, yeah. you know, it's... Really sad. Yeah, saddening. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this movie, I mean, structurally, you know, it's, it doesn't really have much conflict in it. It's just like, you know, having fun watching the cute adventures of Satsuki and Mei and their interactions with Totoro and the other forest creatures. And that's a lot of fun, but it's not like there's like, it leads up to this big thing. Like, even at the end, you know, their mother, they're so worried about their mother, but, like, her mother isn't, like, in danger at the end, so... Yeah, it's pretty clear that she's gonna recover, 
And the ending credits show that she comes home yeah. and, like, everything is fine. So, like, there's no conflict in this movie. Mm. It's just, like, a cute slice of life little thing. And that's very enjoyable, you know? Yeah. But, Sid, I think we're forgetting the bigger picture here. The secret behind Totoro. Uh-huh. Secretly an all-powerful pimp with his cat bus bottom bitch. <laughs> who's what? selling drugs on the black market to little children. What, the acorns are drugs? <laughs> yes. He's getting them the dro- he's getting them to grow weed? Yeah. <laughs> That's why that tree randomly disappeared. It was just a fucking psychedelic illusion. What? He got them high? Yeah. Totoro's one fucked up dude, man. Uh, Gets you hooked on his acorns. They keeps you there forever. Yeah, I guess there's some sinister intentions behind those smiles, huh? They're gonna make Totoro too, man, where they finally reveal his evil secrets, but it was too much. Miyazaki couldn't do it. <laughs> he couldn't reveal the truth. I, you know, I'm surprised they haven't ever tried making My Neighbor Totoro 2. Like, Miyazaki had plans for Ponyo 2. Before My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, that's kind of so strange. You know, considering how iconic and beloved worldwide this film is. Yeah, I mean, also on a side note, ever since that whole, I guess it was a ramen commercial with Kiki from Kiki's Delivery Service came out, now people want a Kiki sequel. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because that's the next movie we're going to see and that's probably what I'm going to pair this with yeah. our discussion with Kiki, so... Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. If Miyazaki ever wants to do a sequel, I don't think people would object. Surely not. But I think what's <laughs> great about this movie is, like, it, it looks beautiful like old Ghibli movies do, but yeah. it really captures the world nostalgia of the country side and, like, the magical nature of the forest and, like, how you see things as a little kid and, like, how everything is fresh and new and exciting. Mm. And, like, I think... That's what really captivates kids. Is like it is this just pure childlike wonder. Yeah, definitely. And we saw in the audience that kids really got into it, and like yeah. they really got invested in this story. They found Kotaro cute. They found like the entire ending with like you know Satsuki and May's mom, you know, in the hospital and everyone being worried, really sad, and May going missing, and, like, they they got invested. Like, at one point, I don't know what was going on, like, I guess the little girl's parents wanted to leave or something, or, like, take her out of the theater for some reason, but, like, she was like, no, I don't want to miss any of this, you know? <laughs> Kids were getting really into it. Yeah. Not so sure about the adults, like, the dad sitting next to us. I think he was looking at his phone a lot. I think he nodded off during the movie. Did he? But, uh, whatever. He, he's, he's like a jaded pleb. Yeah. This movie is for kids and kids at heart. I guess, yeah. Didn't that guy also leave before the G-Kids shorts at the end? I think he did, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to briefly talk about those? Uh, yeah, sure. So. The first one was a French short called The Pocket Man. Yeah, so that one was interesting. It was basically, like, this kind of tiny, like, microscopic, like, insect person. Well, he's not microscopic. He's just really short. Yeah, just he's this very small guy who's, like, I guess the the smaller than a shoebox, essentially. And he's living inside this kind of shoebox, and it keeps getting tipped over. 
and so he tries to set up like a kind of mech, like a trap, so that people won't step over him. So it's a banana peel. But the first person to step on the banana peel is a blind guy. Mm-hmm. So he realizes that he's like, oh, I have to go help this guy. Kind of helps him out. And he realizes that the blind man left his key. So then the rest of the film is like him, like, pretty much being swept away by things. And then eventually he meets the blind guy, gives him the key, and they kind of become friends. And he starts, like, living with him. Yeah, at the end, like, he plays some music through the straw. And that helps the blind man, like, realize when things are in front of him. So that he doesn't, like, walk all over them. Yeah. So it's like a, you know, clever, clever, cute little short. I thought that the art design was pretty cool. Yeah. Like that, like, very flat paper, watercolory, colory palette. It was, it had going for it. Mm-hmm. That was really nice. And then the second short film, I don't know what it was called. It was like food something. Food, not food fight. Food fight's a different, terrible <laughs> film. <laughs> Yeah, I forget what it was called. It was food something. It was about an old lady, and, and she tries to get, like, this candy from a wedding machine, and uh the wedding machine gets stuck, so she, like, rams it a few times, and she gets it. And then the rest of the short film is, like, you know, she's sitting on this bench, and then there's this young guy who has, like, the candy... In front and like she thinks he she he's eating her candy, but it's not. <laughs> it turns out later that her candy was in the bag all along, and that was that guy's candy. It's like dun, dun, dun. okay, uh, that was you know there was some good animation in that, but yeah, the story was like uh, it was pretty simple. It was pretty simple. Can't find the name of that thing. I mean, there were more cookies more than candy, I guess, but either way. I really wish I could remember the name of that. Yeah. I mean, it was good, but it was also, I feel like I've seen yeah. short films like this before. These weren't, like, two of the stronger short films I've seen attached to G-Kids movies. Yeah. But I do appreciate that they do attach short films to these, because it's, it's cool. You get more than just the movie, and you get exposed to some really unique animation that you may have never seen before, or heard of before. Yeah, for sure. And I'm also very grateful to get a chance to see this movie on the big screen, and for the first time. Yeah. It was nice. Yeah, I mean, is there anything else you found really interesting about Miami Bertotoro? I think that's about it. Do you have anything else? No, I guess not. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty simple movie. I think you could probably dig deeper into it. But I feel that compared to the rest of Ghibli's and Miyazaki's, like, filmography, this is one of the more straightforward thematically and just in terms of a story. Yeah, you're not getting a Wind Rises here. I do think it is the ultimate family film, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think this is by far the most family-friendly Ghibli movie, the most, like, Disney-esque, and it's, like, probably the most accessible Ghibli movie, because, you know, if you're a kid, you can easily relate with me and Satsuki, because they're Mm. so, like, real to how kids act, and if you're, like, a parent, you can totally relate to that, too, because that's how your kids act, and you can put yourself in the shoes of the adults, like, the dad and granny. So I think this, yeah, this is the ultimate family film. Like, ideally, both parents and children will get something out of this movie. 
Unless you're like that guy who's sitting next to us. Yeah. Screw that guy. Unless you're like a jaded, uh, jaded person. Why was he even there? To take his kid to the what? film. Did he have a kid with him? I'm pretty sure he did. Otherwise, uh, I don't know why he'd be there unless, unless he wasn't a dad, but just some guy and his girlfriend brought him to the movie. I don't know. Maybe. But I think they had a kid with him. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, screw that guy. Yeah. My Neighbor Totoro is a great time and a deserving classic worthy of its legacy from the last 20 years and definitely probably the film to show your family and to show young kids to, you know, introduce them to anime or just foreign movies in general. Definitely. And I'm looking forward to talking about Kiki's Delivery Service, another film that I haven't ever seen before for some reason. I thought you had seen it and you didn't like it. Maybe. I don't remember. I don't think I ever have. You put it on your MAO, I think. Did I? Yeah. I don't know. I remember you, like, initially giving it, like, a six or something and then you, like, increased the score. I don't know. Uh, Maybe I saw a bit of it, but I, the fact that I can barely remember it means that maybe you, you hated know. it so much that you repressed it from your memories. Uh, I don't know. It was know. too traumatizing. <laughs> maybe. Well, I guess we'll have to see when we talk about that, which is probably going to be right now. Ooh. Transition. Yeah, transition. 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 We're transitioning to the next thing. The next Goofy by Ghibli. It's gonna be Kiki's delivery service. We make him stop, please. <laughs> Send help. Send help. But help never came. We were in too deep. I remained unconvinced at Relord's theory that Totoro was a drug dealer. After all, it sounded so absurd. Like some stupid creepy pasta about how the Rugrats are actually dead and in purgatory or some crap like that. But then we saw Kiki and the pieces started falling into place. Kiki's delivery service did me a service alright. It delivered to me the truth. Welcome to Manga Memory Tat Movies, the show where we talk smack about movies. We're still going with that catchphrase, I guess. I don't know. We're rolling with it. I mean, it's been 15 episodes now, or whatever. However long it's been, I don't know. We still haven't thought of a better catchphrase. Even though we've changed the name of the show, we still haven't thought of a better catchphrase. How come you've never contributed any ideas? Uh, you've never asked me to come up with a catchphrase. Well, that's We Lord GTZ for you. That's my co-host on this podcast for you. Not contributing any new ideas. <laughs> I don't even know why I even have you on. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about a movie. A Studio Ghibli movie as part of G-Kids theatrical re-releases of these Ghibli classics. And the one that we're talking about today is the one we saw in July, Kiki's Delivery Service. That's right, the 1989 classic film that, believe it or not, I had not seen until I went to the theaters. Which is weird, because I'm pretty sure I heard you talking about it before. Because I remember you watched it once, and you're like, yeah, I wasn't really into this. Maybe I 
don't remember really watching the movie the whole way through. I might have seen a part of it and then marked it on my MAL just because, I don't know, maybe. Mm. But I had no recollection of most of this movie, so I'm going to take a gander and say that I hadn't really seen it before. Yeah, I think I had seen it before, but it probably was like 10-something years ago at this point. I'm pretty sure it did air on Cartoon Network. Yeah, so I probably watched it on there. Yeah. Yeah. So basically both of us went to this movie fairly fresh. And how was the theater experience? I mean, it was pretty packed, I guess. It was about the same as Totoro, so... Yeah. Uh, For these Ghibli Fest screenings, the theater we've been going to is usually getting filled up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this was no different. Though I was a little surprised to see as many families as I did there because we went to the subtitle screening. I mean, uh, I think there's probably a lot of families who are like, oh, we we can't go to maybe the showing on Sunday because Sunday usually a lot of people have like religious stuff or something. So they're like, oh, let's go to the Monday showing. It's subtitled, but we'll still enjoy it. It's Ghibli. Maybe that, or there are a lot more weed parents <laughs> in our neighborhood than we had previously. Those goddamn weeaboos. <laughs> I mean, I think Eden Prairie might be surprisingly full of otaku. Maybe? Maybe. I, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, age-wise, it was people from all ages. I think, like, the People sitting next to us were, like, probably in, like, their 70s. Mm-hmm. They were pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jonathan was also in the theater with us. We weren't sitting right next to him, but he was in the row in front of yeah. us. And he brought his, like, little brother who's, like, in middle school. Yeah. And uh, we didn't get to ask him about his thoughts on the film. I think he liked it. Okay, cool. But, yeah. Kiki's Delivery Service is a good coming-of-age story about this witch who leaves off on her own when she becomes 13 to find a town. Yeah, tries to make it in the big city, and yeah, she had some difficulties, like starting up her own business at first, but then later on, she works hard, gains some cred, and make, works her way up. And then she has like an existential, not existential, but she has kind of a crisis of like faith in her own abilities, and she gets a little bit disillusioned. She loses her ability to use magic. Her talking cat stops talking to her. Because she hooks up with a girlfriend. And yeah. Like, you know, and they're getting nasty on the side as we see at the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, they, they they were pretty busy, it seems. Yeah. Of course, we all know this is one big metaphor for drugs. Hayao <laughs> Miyazaki's been shoving drugs up children for decades. Yeah, I mean, clearly Kiki Kiki was on some high shit. She was she was peddling some things uh, under the nose. That that was what her delivery service really was. It was a yeah. drug delivery service. Totoro and- was growing the drugs. He was growing that good-ass weed, and then the Kiki's been delivering it all over. That pie that she got from the old lady in this movie, it was filled with drugs. Everything was filled with drugs. That, that, uh, the cat doll that she has to first deliver, that it's filled with drugs. They just gave it to the kid as a decoy. All drugs. All, all of it was cover. It seemed so innocent. But the reality of it all is she was peddling some Quality merchandise, if you know what I mean. Oh, the, the, the gift, <laughs> that pie the old lady baked for at the end. Yeah, you can tell Kiki was going to get 
some good high off of that shit. Yeah. Yeah. The Ghibli conspiracy keeps growing as we see these movies. Yeah. We, we saw the process. We saw where the drugs came from in Totoro. <laughs> and now we see how it's getting distributed around. It's not just Kiki. Kiki who's doing this. It's all the other witches. That snooty witch that she met earlier in the movie. Like, she was clearly peddling drugs to this, like, oh. more high bustling city. That, you know? It was, clear, it was clear. Like, all these witches, they're all... The, her mother, she was making them drugs. The Guess the chemicals. chemicals. Like, she's a real Walter White-esque bitch, man. science, but yeah. Yeah, so what's the drug thing in Castle in the Sky going to be then? I don't know, because I've never seen Castle in the Sky, so we're going to have to see how the conspiracy unfolds. But but you're seeing how the conspiracy keeps unfolding with every movie, right? So I, I can't imagine what revelations we're going to have when we reach, when we reach the end of this. What is the end of this? Spirited Away? Man, I, I, that'll be mind-boggling. I thought Spirited Away is just the kids getting high. I mean, that is obviously the premise of the movie, is that she's getting high, and she's, like, running around doing all this crazy stuff where her parents are like, uh, whatever, oh, we'll just be off here eating, <laughs> you know, uh, you can you can go have your adventures, uh, I don't know what she's on, but whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ignoring the, uh... Hidden messages of keeping the delivery service. The hidden conspiracy behind the Ghibli canon of films. The cover story <laughs> of this movie. How do we think about that? How do we think about, like, this cute little coming of age story of this Kiki girl? Because I found her story pretty endearing. I thought the Kiki's doubts of self-confidence, her efforts to try and, like, make a name for herself, figure out what she's good at. What skills she can, you know, utilize to make a career for herself. I thought that was all very interesting, and I enjoyed seeing her story develop. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, the movie starts out with Kiki wanting to just kind of go get her. She wants to get out of her, like, small, like, village area and go and see the big world and what's beyond and, like, become, like, a full-fledged witch. And when she gets to the city, she realizes, oh, hey, this is way hard- harder than I thought it would be. It's... For one thing, times have changed since her parents were witches, and kind of society's kind of moved on from kind of magic in general. It's kind of become more about technology. Like, a big thing in the movie is that people are all amazed about this flying blimp that comes into the city. There's, like, this huge advancement in technology. And then Kiki's very much kind of representing, like, the old ways of, like, society. Mm-hmm. Where, like, people used to, like, really depend on the witches and what they brought. So, yeah. a lot of the film, I feel, is, like, very much her kind of adapting this new environment where she comes from such a small area where they don't have this type of technology. And she's going to an area that's so much more technology-dependent. And then it's her trying to figure out how does she fit into this grand scheme. Yeah, she's trying to adapt to modern times, take old metas and apply them to a new technology-charged setting. And yeah, that's pretty interesting to see like how they kind of mediate a sort of middle ground for Kiki skills to be useful and to have a place within this society that is kind of not 
become accustomed to magic anymore. They've kind of grown out of like relying on that and instead relying more on the technology. But also showing that sometimes old methods are the best, you know? A core scene in the movie is them baking that pie using an old um uh, old oven style thing. Uh heat I don't know what the exact term It's uh I think it's a fire stone oven or whatever. Brick yeah. oven, I don't know. Oh, yeah, an old brick oven. They use an old brick oven because the electrical oven isn't working. And so that entire scene is a huge just metaphor for, like, sometimes the old ways are worked and then they're best. And you can't always depend on, like, the new technology. Sometimes it'll fail you, and that's when the old ways are useful. And we see that again at the end of the movie yeah, when Tombo's hang dangling from the blimp because the blimp is going haywire and crashing and, you know, they need the only one who can save him is Kiki by flying her broom. That's like, you know, she ha- can do something that no one else can do there. Yeah. And that's also kind of Kiki's arc is figuring out what she can do that no one else can do and, like, being confident that she can do that. And so she has a sort of, like, artist block in the middle of the movie because she, you know, loses faith in, like, herself, basically. And mm. because she loses faith in herself, she loses her magic. And she needs to, like, regain... Like, what inspires her is when she sees Tombo in trouble, It, ha- it it's a moment where, you know, she has to do this. She has to be able to fly and save him. So that's what's able to jog her ability to use magic again is just that flight or fight response innate thing. Because she always had the magic in her. She didn't really lose her magic. She just forgot how to tap into those emotions yeah. to make her able to use it, you know? Yeah. Like, she forgot, she forgot the kind of impulse feeling that she used to be able to use her magic. Because she lost her confidence, that went away. Yeah. So it's like good thematic messages and seedings throughout the film. Like, there's very strong uh, parallels to, like, the broader concept of uh, modernization, the old technology versus new technology, traditions, and, of course, like, kind of the artist artist struggle of figuring out your craft and stuff. Yeah. And also, of course, growing up and trying. Like, uh, the reason why Kiki stops being able to talk to Gigi is because, like, talking to Gigi is kind of a crux. Like, Gigi is, like, her only friend from the most of the movie, and she's just kind of relying on him instead of, like, going out and making other friends with Tombo and those other kids. So what she needs to learn by that is, like, Gigi not being able to talk with Gigi, you know, that's cut off from her. She has to make friends, make connections with other the other people around her. You know, that's a part of, like, her maturing, her growing up. And, you know, part of growing up is, like, being able to make your own friends, kind of. Yeah. I mean, going back to the aspiring artists, aspiring people kind of whole part of the film, like, even outside of Kiki, you do see these other characters, like, the, I forget the boy's name. What's the boy's name? Tombo. Yeah, Tombo. Yeah, Tombo wants to create his own flying machine. That's his dream that he's striving for. And then Kiki also meets this other friend in the forest, this girl who's an artist, and she's trying to make her own art and become, like, a high-class artist. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, it's there's very, there's a lot of different, like, ways in which people are striving to kind of reach success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I thought that was a very kind of nice touch to the film. Yeah. I mean, going going away from the themes of, of the film overall narrative, I, I have to say the animation in this film was fantastic, especially the flying scenes. Well, yeah, it's a Ghibli movie. But yeah. yeah. The flying <laughs> scenes were indeed incredibly magical and musical, as appropriate of the kind of premise of this movie, and especially in the final sequence where Kikwe is flying throughout the town, she her boom is going a little haywire, and she's crashing into things, you know, there's like great, like, motion and weight and like an air of unpredictability and how the boom is moving and swinging around the city and it's just a great environment and also just great like uh, directing your eye to various things and like conveying mm-hmm. that speed of motion and that excitement and that like unpredictability that Kiki is experiencing in that moment and yeah it's pretty great mm. yeah for sure mm-hmm. mm. so yep the the core themes of this film is Kiki transitioning into adulthood, the focus between, well, the balance between the old and the new, uh, traditional society and modern society, and that methodology, and different methodologies. Yeah, artistic blocks, self, overcoming self-doubt and depression and isolation. I guess that's basically all. We've <laughs> basically covered everything, right? Yeah. See, the problem is, we should have talked about this movie immediately after we saw yeah, it. Yeah, we should have. Two weeks, but... Well, we're, we're busy. But, yeah, Kiki's Delivery Service. That was a good time. It's good. Uh, it's worth diving deeper into. Like, all the Ghibli movies, I really need to dive deeper into, in terms of, like... Especially the drug. <laughs> I mean, obviously that. We need to, you know continue to unfurl this conspiracy that Miyazaki has been treading into all of his movies. Yes. And so it is going to be uh, important for us to go see the next movies and continue unfurling that narrative. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so that's something we, we need to blow the lid off. We need to bl- make everyone aware of the truth. We mean to, you know, it's, it's it's as big a conspiracy as in that classic Twilight Zone episode, The Food is People. I've people. never watched The Twilight Zone. But you have to know that. I, I, I've heard of that one, The Food is People one. Yeah, yeah Soil and Green is People. Soil and Green is People. Right, right. So Ghibli films are a allegory for drug trafficking. They're trying to get kids hooked on drugs. That's, that's what we need to scream out in the streets. That's what we need to expose. <laughs> oh we need God. to save America's youth from the evil encouragement of Japanese propaganda. Well, okay. Yeah. That's right. So we'll, we'll see Castle in the Sign and we'll figure out Miyazaki's game. But where he's going with this? How he's trying to corrupt our youth. What's and how he has been message. for the last 30 years. Just didn't realize it until now. Yeah. Didn't notice this. We didn't know. We didn't listen. We didn't listen. This is why anime has infected our country. This is why anime was a mistake. Yes, it's not because Miyazaki's a hypocrite and doesn't like anime adaptions. That's uh, a big reduction of his actual argument. I, I know. But, yeah. Uh, Geeky's Delivery Service is pretty good. <laughs> it doesn't have a very satisfying 
ending? I don't know. Yeah. I feel like the movie just kind of ends. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about Totoro, too, in a way. It's That's like, true. Both Kiki and Totoro just kind of Like, end. there's no, there's no, like, log overreaching goal in the film. It's just yeah. kind of that. Yeah, just stuff happens. That's kind of, that was pretty much the trend with early Ghibli films, I feel. It's just kind of, like, the I mean, story's yeah. there. I mean, it's an epitome of slice of life storytelling. Is yeah. That it's just showing you a day in the life of these characters for a while, and then it just stops after, like, something that feels like a big event. Like, in Totoro, the big event was the sister going missing and, you know, needing to find her. And in mm-hmm. this movie, the big event is Tombo, you know, dangling off the edge of the hot bear balloon and Kiki needing to save him. Mm-hmm. So, and after those things happen, you know, the movies end. Because you've seen the big climax at the you get the point of, like, what the emotional arc was, I guess. Yeah. Like, I feel with later Ghibli films, the Slice of Life ones particularly, they do kind of switch more to, uh, well, the, well, they're still Slice of Life, obviously. They do have a stronger, I guess, narrative focus. Like, I guess an example, Only Yesterday. Yeah. It's like, well, that's very much still a Slice of Life film. It still has a more concrete structure. Like, you can tell that it has, like, a defined beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Where the, the, the Totoro and uh, Kiki kind of have, here's the beginning, and then the, it just kind of just goes and stays in the middle for the rest of the film. Yeah. It doesn't both, feel like it has a defined ending. Yeah, both Totoro and Kiki feel like they're pilots for a larger story. Like, these are TV, not TV, but these are, like, movies that will eventually be expanded upon as a TV show. And maybe part of why I feel that way with Kiki is because, you know, Little Witch Academia is so recent in my memory. Uh, I just can't help but imagine how incredible Kiki would have also been as a TV series. Because I feel like there's just so much you could do with the character and the setting, and you could have fun, episodic adventures with her. Same with Totoro, too. Like yeah, same with Totoro. Totoro is... I think with Totoro, it bothers me even more, because Totoro really is not that involved in the climax of that film. Like, he summons the cat bus to help the girl out and all that, but he doesn't actually go with them. So, yeah, I, it's very strange to me. So, I feel like you could use more Totoro stories. Like, I don't, I feel like he's, for a movie named after him, he's not, it's just the focus. He has to much. stay in the background so that the DA, DEA does catch him. <laughs> That's if true. they made the TV show, it would be the greatest thing since Breaking Bad. <laughs> so, if Totoro is Walter White, then who would be his Hank? Who's Jesse? He's Jesse's cat bus. Okay. So cat bus is gonna do all the killing. You just have to run over them. It's simple. <laughs> I don't know. They have to introduce a new character for Hank. I think. I guess. Unless Hank's like the dad character. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, no, because like he's not antagonistic to Toto. He's, like, yeah. Totally encouraging the girls to go like hang with these. Not, I mean, he's not aware that they're real, but he's like pretty optimistic and chill about the stories, you know? Okay, so they'd have to create a Hank character. Yeah, and then it just raises more questions in my mind, like, who is the Gus here, and then who is the Mike, you know? <laughs> or is, is Totoro really... Is Totoro maybe... No, because Wal- Walter created the drug, so he would be... Totoro would be Walter, right? <laughs> so, ah, uh, You can't make these one-to-one Breaking Back comparisons. 
I guess, because these are different, because yeah. these characters don't reappear in the movies. Unless, obviously, we, unless we bring the in characters conspiracy. from other Ghibli films and have them be part of the large Ghibli-verse of Breaking Bad, or I don't know. I think I don't we've know established yeah. that these all these movies are connected in this major thread <laughs> of drug trafficking and like telling kids that drugs are good and you should take them, oh okay? God. But... Again, I guess yeah. you just need to keep watching these movies unfurling the great Ghibli conspiracy. Yeah, probably. But I guess that's all we have to say for Kiki for now. We're just going to have to watch Castle in the Sky and just figure this out. Oh, God. The secrets be... So... Totoro's the dealer, and Kiki the deliverer. The question is, where did it all come from? With the Buddha, a whole new world hidden to my eyes revealed itself, and the depths of Miyazaki's depravity became all the clearer. Welcome to Manga Mavericks at Movies, the show where we're uncovering the conspiracy behind Hayao Miyazaki's filmography and his insidious attempt to brainwash children into taking drugs and stop watching anime. Yeah, so we saw Castle in the Sky. Yes, Castle in the Sky. The next step in Miyazaki's insidious master plan. What did you know about this movie before you watched it, Relord? I, okay, so I'm pretty sure I watched this movie back when it aired on Cartoon Network. But which time, Relord? Was it on Toonami or Maguzi? It was the Toonami one for sure, because I barely watched Maguzi. But yeah, I, the thing is, like, even though I saw it before, I didn't really remember it that much. It's kind of like Spirit of the Way, Spirit Away from me, where it's just, like, very vague in my memory. Yes. I didn't know anything about this movie. I never saw it as a kid. And so Hunts was never brainwashed by the insidious subtext of the movie. All I knew is that there was a castle in the sky. Oh, yeah. That, that's, and that's that was exactly. definitely a part of this movie. But there was so much more. I mean, yeah, they don't really get to the castle in the sky until the very end, so... Yes. This movie is about girl. Obviously a prin- a princess, right? A princess? Yeah. Uh, well, she's descended from a royal lineage. She herself is not necessarily a princess anymore because her family, her royal uh, hierarchy, the whole kingdom... Her fam is dead. Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore, so, you know, she's not really a princess. But, you know, she descends... She's descended from a royal ling- lineage, and she has this magical crystal amulet, and that crystal amulet will point the direction to the castle in the sky, Laputa, which is the land of great military accomplishments. And what's really interesting is that in the opening credits of the movie, we see the rise and fall of the Laputa Empire in this really cool stylized credit sequence. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, it I remember. super awesome. Yeah. Great, like, art style, like, that call back to, like, uh, East European kind of art, uh, art scrolls and whatever. It was really cool. Yeah, it was cool. Yes, it was. Uh, and so, you know, at the beginning of the movie, she's been taken prisoner by the government, but then pirates, the Dola gang, 
they invade the pirate ship, and then she u takes advantage of the confusion to escape, and then she, you know, uh, falls down into this mining town where she's discovered by a boy named Pazu, who, you know, helps her recover, and then when the pirates and the government come after them again, they team up, they re uh, realize that uh, she has a magical amulet that will take them to Laputa. And so then they, you know, decide to go off to Laputa to get her. But then the government comes back and kidnaps them and, you know, jails the kid. But then uh, the girl, uh, you know, they force her to, like, cooperate. And so, you know, why am I explaining the plot of the movie? It's, it'll take forever to explain the plot of the movie. Yeah. The movie, like, it's an insane adventure film. It's really fun because of how awesome the adventure is. And it's, like, so epic in scale. You got these, like, uh, it has everything. It has, like, insane slapstick, great comedy. There's pirates. There's robots. Oh, my. It's just ingenious. There's a castle in the sky hidden like, by like, a all, hurricane all, all, like, of wind. The, all, like, the sky vehicle scene on this just look fantastic. Oh, they are beautiful. You know, all the Miyazaki films have great flight sequences, but there are just some amazing flight moments in the, this The Sakuga movie. fans probably go crazy over this. Oh, yeah. The scene where Dola and Pazu are, like, on the her, like, sky motorcycle thing, and yeah. she's, then they're, like, racing across the fields towards, like, the fortress where Shita is. Beautiful. Beautiful animation there. Like, mm -hmm. that really captured the speed that they were going at it so well. It was so cool. Yeah, so... What did you really love about this movie, Reward? What I really liked about it was that... Like, one, one, the animation was beautiful. Two, it had a pretty concrete story. Like, I guess the whole motif of it is kind of like the advancement of technology and kind of the concerns of advancing technology to the point that it's becoming too dangerous. And kind of how... In a way, we we need to we can't going too far with that aspect of things and like trying to become is more militaristic isn't necessarily the best way for society. Yeah, I think the core scene of the movie is like when Muska, the villain, who is also a descendant of the royal line, is like trying to take control of the weapons in Laputa, and Sheeta is like telling him, you know, these weapons are evil. You know, the king, this kingdom cannot be revived. There are no people left in it. A kingdom is not built on weaponry and machines and destruction and war. It's built upon people. It's built upon the earth. And by separating yourself from the earth, you cannot survive. Like, that's another big environmental theme in the movie. It's like, it's heavily implied that, you know, because people left the earth in these flying islands, that ultimately caused the downfall of those civilizations. Because mm -hmm. you can't live without the earth. You yeah. can't live separated from the earth. Like, so the isolation probably doesn't help. Yeah, it's, it's like, another yeah. example of Miyazaki's environmental propaganda he's using to brainwash children <laughs> into doing his labor on the fields of his weed field shops. Okay, it took me a while to figure out the whole drug motif that we've been uncovering <laughs> from this. But it seems to be that Lapita represents the rival drugs of Miyazaki uh, that the government is trying to get for, so that they can stop Miyazaki's 
drug trade. And yeah. so he's trying to teach us to not go for the rival drugs and stick <laughs> with his stuff that's earth-grown. Yeah, yeah, stick with the natural drugs. Don't get those fancy, artificial, man-made drugs. You need the uh, herbal stuff. Yes, like the Miyazaki's, stuff. Miyazaki's all natural special. That's how you get the real good high, right? Yeah, right, me, kids? Me, me, Miyazaki knows what's good for you. He does. So that's uh, his insidious message behind this movie. It's It seems like an innocent enough environmental message, but it's really an insidious like message. But uh, no, try, try my drugs, not their drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let them... Profit off of, uh, profit off, profit, let me profit. Miyazaki and his secret drug ways. Watch my movies and buy my drugs. I'm Miyazaki. Anime was a mistake. Yes. Don't watch other anime, just watch mine. Oh my god, it all makes sense now. Right, because other anime will teach kids different messages and maybe try and encourage them to not take Miyazaki's drugs. So Miyazaki wants them to not watch those other anime, so that's why he calls them mistakes. And he says that his anime were the better art is the only true anime the kids should be watching so he can like make them addicted to his movies and by being addicted to his movies and only able to watch his movies they will be susceptible to his propaganda which will reverberate in their brains and seep into their subconscious and make them go out and affect their daily lives by making them buy like Miyazaki's drugs We've uncovered the truth, people. Spread the word. Spread the word before it's too late. This movie came out in 1986. It's already been three decades. Think about all the damage it's caused already. You can't let Miyazaki get away with this. You can't let him return to anime. It's all a mistake. It's it's a conspiracy. The rest of the anime were, was a mistake. But it was really Miyazaki's anime that was a mistake. Those grasses, those flowers on the puta, it's not an innocent garden. It's a weed garden. <laughs> it's a weed garden. They weren't after the treasure or the military weapons. They were after the weed. The robots were protecting the weed. <laughs> and there are probably weeds in that garden. But, but no, not. yeah, weed weeds. Yeah, uh, wait, wait, are we talking marijuana weeds? We're talking marijuana weeds! Oh, yeah, yeah, it's totally there, guys. Oh, boy. Miyazaki, the more we watch his movies, the more we realize just how <sighs> disturbing his 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 agenda it really is. Huh? I'm, I'm interested to see what we uncover in Nausicaa. Yes. I wonder if the job of this movie, because we saw the sub, yeah. Does the dub cover up this propaganda? Probably not. Hmm. Because there are significant changes to the dub. One oh. was that the entire orchestral score was changed because Joe Hisashi's 60-minute score was extended to a 90-minute score. And there were a bunch of one-liners added in the dub. There was... All the background chatter was, like, increased. And uh, the characters sound way older in the dub. And... Oh my god, I just remembered one thing removed from the dub. Well, not remembered one thing removed from the dub, because I haven't seen the dub, but, like, one thing that uh, I've heard about the dub that was removed from it was... Uh, uh, 
Oh my god, Miyazaki is not just a drug peddler. He's a child trafficker. Wait, what? Think, remember the Dola gang? How all of the male subordinates of Dola were so attracted to the young, underage Shitown? Do, do they take out that scene? They uh, remove like the references to the fact that they're attracted to her. Oh, okay. I can sort of see why. That would probably not gel well with American audiences at the time. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Like, originally, I thought, oh, they saw her as a mother figure because Dola said that, you know, she'd become like her. It wasn't like a I, really I, that's, romantic that's, that's, that's what I assumed, too. Yeah, yeah. I assumed that. I thought that was what they were going for. But no. No. <laughs> clearly, it was supposed to be a romantic sexual connection. Mizaki's trying to condition oh, young minds to see underage girls as sexually desirable as future child. Child-bearing uh, vessels. Oh God! What are we doing to this food? We're not doing anything. Miyazaki is the one with the sick mind who is trying to brainwash our youth into becoming child slaves and addicted to drugs. We Lord, we gotta stop him. We gotta spread the word. Uh, in all seriousness, I think the intention was. I'm probably- being serious. In all seriousness, I think the exact connection was, yeah, the fact that Cheetah is a mother figure, mm. and that's why, like, all of the... Dola gang. Dola gang's, like, uh, sons, like, all kind of are... It's not really spoon over, but like they're smitten up, with her. Smitten with her. I, but I can see why the dub would change that because it could be interpreted the other way. Oh no! From what I'm reading, apparently the dub actually made it more explicit. My God, it's not just Miyazaki. Disney themselves are in on this. Oh no! We should have known all along. <laughs> That's how Disney has, of course, profited. It's profited by corrupting our youth. Of course, they would want to help Miyazaki push his agenda. But but how did they detach from the Ghibli films then? Because they don't have the license anymore. Clearly, Miyazaki and Disney have had a falling out in recent years. But before, they were in on this scheme together. I mean, it makes sense. Disney was pushing all those Jonas Brothers and their Hannah Montana. Right, right. Remember the incredibly creepy phallic imagery in Jonas Brothers' concerts? You mean how their hands are always around their decks? Yes. Subconscious sexual imagery. Yeah. Trick America's youth. What are the Jonas Brothers even up to nowadays? They're solo artists. They are? At least, a f- I think Nick Jonas is. Oh, okay. I haven't yeah. heard one of their songs in, like, ages. You know why Disney pop stars all become heavily sexualized later on in life? It's because Disney abused and used them and brainwashed them. And as all sexually abused children do, they only know how to behave <laughs> and uh, act now in, like, the manner in which they were abused. Oh and that is expressing God. their sexuality openly. No. That's what's happening to America's no. youth. That's what's happening to Japan's youth by watching these films. No. That's what they're learning. V-Lord. That's why Japan has such a sexually perverse media, V-Lord. Oh. It's because they're watching me. I, I think you should put it. And absorbing oh, their connections 
from these movies, me lord. I think it's should, a crime against you or you. I think you should put like an explicit content warning on this episode. Why? I don't know. We haven't even said that many uh, bad words. I don't know. I think the, the reason Disney like idols and stuff go super sexual that Disney's so like adamant on keeping them pure. Mm-hmm. That once they leave Disney, they're like. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. I'm, I'm tired of listening to Disney. Yeah. But if we can ignore the propaganda behind this film, <laughs> you know, if I could ignore that, I would say that this was an awesome adventure <laughs> film with beautiful <laughs> animation and an awesome story, great villain, like really intense scenes and suspense, great comedy, and a lovable gang of... Uh, Anti-heroes, anti-villains, and the Dola gang. They were freaking great. Some the Dola gang is awesome. Some of my favorite Miyazaki characters. Like, Dola herself is just so cool and uh, fun. And, you know, this is a, such an enjoyable movie that I can't believe I haven't hadn't seen it before now. But I honestly might say this is, like, my second favorite of Miyazaki's films at this point because it's just so enjoyable. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Really great ride. It's just so unfortunate that Miyazaki had such an insane decision behind it. But that's true of all his films, I guess. Oh, God. <sighs> In all seriousness, though... Um... I'm being serious! <laughs> Why are you trying to downplay the seriousness of the evil agenda behind these movies? <laughs> Uh, in any case, G-Kids should be re-releasing this film fairly soon, so go pick up that release. It's worth picking up. It's It's a great film. Yes. We will definitely be picking it up because I want to see this movie again. Enjoy it all over again. And also pick apart all oh the God. evil stuff, all the sub subtext that is attempting to brainwash our kids and expose it to the world in an even deeper detail. Miyazaki was a hardcore druggie and we didn't even know it. Yes. We didn't know. Miyazaki movies were a mistake. He lied to us. Yes. <laughs> what the fuck are we doing? Ah, we're exposing the conspiracy. And the next step in doing that is to go back to where it all began. Nazca and the Valley of the Wind. No, we have to go back even farther. Totoro, Kiki and Laputa showed us the process, but we still needed more proof to expose the truth to the public. To understand Miyazaki's endgame, we needed to go back to the beginning, before Nausicaa, to Lupin III, the castle of Cagulostro. I think we're... Beating around the bush of the real issue here. Miyazaki's drug conspiracy! That's right. So, the counterfeiting scheme just makes this really obvious. And yeah. that the government's been helping Miyazaki produce the drugs. Uh, no. Like, this is like to turn the kids against the government. Like, the oh. whole point of it was that. The old, all the inflation in the world, all the money in the world is meaningless because the gov, everyone in the government has conspired to print 
fake money of no real monetary value and distributed in the populace, and this has spread fake wealth around and allowed the rich to get richer off of the backs of the poor, and like everyone in the government is in on it. You know that scene where Zenigata is in like the <laughs> United Nations office and all the representatives are talking and they're saying yeah. Zenigata, oh, we're, we're just gonna, you have no proof, uh, you, you can't prove anything, and we're not gonna do anything. It's, it's, it's anyway, it's their guys' fault, it's the Americans' fault, it's, it's your CIA who's responsible for this, and then the American, and then they start this fake debate to distract themselves from the real problem. But, yeah, and then later, when they see on the TV that Zenigata has exposed it, they're saying, like, oh, well, we can't cover this up. You know, through these scenes, Miyazaki is saying that your world leaders can't trust them. They'll lie to you, they're incompetent, and they're influ- and, and they're, the reason that there's so much inflation and why m- money is increasingly being worth less than it used to be, and why like we're increasingly getting poor. So Miyazaki is using this film to turn you against the government. <laughs> and then turn you on to drugs? Yeah, see, because he's gonna, now that he's exposed you to the lies of the government, now that he's made kids mistrust the you mistrust like the guys in charge mistrust they're gonna start mistrusting your parents gonna be, they're gonna start mistrusting everyone but you know what they're gonna trust the drug dealers they're gonna trust the lupon they're gonna trust the guy who came in looking out for those innocent young kids and stole their hearts away with thrilling humor and adventure. But Lupin. Who is the man behind Lupin in this film? Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> Lupin, as a character in this film, is a metaphor. A stand-in for Miyazaki himself. <laughs> he is subliminally brainwashing you oh to God. love him and be as dependent on him as Clarice is by the end of this movie. That is the whole point of Clarice falling in love with Lupin. Oh God. Clarice is the children of Japan and henceforth the children of the world. Oh my God. So... As the first step in Miyazaki's master conspiracy to brainwash the youth of the world, he's using this movie to make them lose trust in their government, in their parents, in the people who supposedly are out to protect them, but really are not, and to put trust in him. The fun-loving guy who will entertain you, who will be your knight in charming armor, the animator with a heart of gold, Hayao Miyazaki. My mind has been blown. Yeah. You never thought to think of this movie that way, but it's the truth. This is <laughs> the, where it all began. Uh, this this conspiracy is going too deep. Soon Ghibli's going to come and hunt us down. They don't want us to uncover what's going to be in their next film. Well, we're going to uncover it. The next film is another significant one. It's Nausicaa. I will get more into Nausicaa and how the conspiracy unfolds from Cagliostro, you know, in the next episode or something. I don't, I'm probably going to release this before... <laughs> are any, are any of these Miyazaki 
No, none of them are out yet. I'm going to release this probably before any of those are out, so all the people in the audience are going to be like, what are they talking about? Miyazaki conspiracy? (laughs) Drug dealing? What is this narrative? Yeah, so this has been something me and We Lord have been digging deep into (laughs) since these Ghibli movie screenings have began in June. We realized that there's like this huge, huge conspiracy (laughs) where Miyazaki is like promoting drug use and getting children's addicted on drugs drew subliminal messages in his movies and uh yeah we're gonna expose them to the world and we just told you how this movie fits into all that as the beginning of Miyazaki's theatrical film career it's getting kids in, uh, to trust Miyazaki over their Tory figures Miyazaki does drugs well he peddles drugs to children through his movies yeah Though we risk being hunted down by Miyazaki's goon squad, Lupin proved to us that Miyazaki's plan to brainwash the children of the world has been in place since the beginning. But it's clear he'd been restricted in how much propaganda he could place in a franchise he couldn't control. So the next logical step was for him to start his own studio and direct films without any outside interference getting in his way. Which leads us to his next feature. Showing Miyazaki's message presented in its purest and bluntest form, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Welcome to Manga Mavericks Add Movies, the show where we talk smack about movies, except we don't talk smack about movies, usually usually we have very good things to say about them, except for when it comes to these films by Hayao Miyazaki, where we have to <laughs> dig into and expose his evil conspiracy to get the youth of the world addicted to his drugs. Yeah. Yuzaki and his secret drug deals with the anime industry. Yes. And we can see that the blueprints for this stem all the way back to his earliest debuts when we cover the castle of Cagliostro. And now, here's the next step in the puzzle. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. His 1984 film produced for Tokuma Shoten and Hakuhodo, animated by Topcraft, his first collaboration with film composer Joe Hisaishi, who would then go on to score most of the Studio Ghibli canon. Yeah, it's weird, because we're seeing the screening as part of the Ghibli Fest, but this film was technically not done by Studio Ghibli themselves. Yes, though people, you know, do some historical correction to consider this part of the Ghibli canon, even including it on yeah. Ghibli like collection DVDs box sets. Which is, which is a bit strange, because I mean, technically, you can consider what Topcraft became Studio Ghibli, because what essentially happened is that Hayao, Ma- Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata pretty much bought Topcraft, laid off most most of the staff, and then renamed the studio Studio Ghibli. Mm-hmm. So, I guess in that sense, it is Studio Ghibli, but you pretty much got rid of all the staff. Yes. So at that point, it's not really a Ghibli film, because by the time this was made, it was, it's not the same staff that would eventually do the Ghibli films. 
Yes, yes. But this film <laughs> came about originally as an adaptation of Miyazaki's manga of the same name that he's from 1982. Because... He got pretty popular after Castle of Cagliostro. And so, even though that film was not a box office success, the editor of anime, Shoshio Suzuki, really liked it, so he wanted him to make a work for his magazine's publisher, Tokima Shoten. And so, he did a rejected idea he had for a film, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and it became the most popular thing in anime age, so then it became a film, like, two years later. Yeah. Yes. But we can see <laughs> that what Suzuki was really after was the lucrative drug money he knew Miyazaki wanted to peddle to the children. Oh, so he, God. that's why he wanted Miyazaki to write a story for him. Cause he wanted to get in on that sweet, sweet green and moving that sweet, sweet white stuff. Oh God. Yeah. Or that green stuff. Because like all of the Miyazaki canon, this film has a heavy environmental message, which is extremely blatant and is not subtle about it at all, because Nausicaa goes on long rants about, Oh, you're poisoning the earth. Killing is wrong. You're angering the worms. Don't kill the worms. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they like caterpillar things? Because they're supposed to be bugs. So Caterpillar things, yeah, they look all... They look similar to those. They're bugs. They're fictional Yeah, bugs. so they can't be oh. worm. Yeah. So, let's just get it right out of the way. It's pretty... Just like how the film's environmental message, the surface level environmental <laughs> message is obvious, the uh, darker uh, subtextual message is also pretty obvious in that, yeah. hey kids, your authority figures are getting you involved in wars and they're destroying the earth. That's wrong. Don't you trust your authority figures. Don't go into war. We all need to be happy and one with nature and one with the greenery and the bugs and the light. Man, now we here's gotta some... be hippies, yeah. man. Now we gotta some... live with the nature. We gotta grow them green, man. <laughs> gotta grow them green, and then if you grow them green, you're gonna have nice dreams of fields oh and flowers. You'll trip out real peaceful, like just and like Nausicaa, man. And then you could go hang out with Totoro in his special forest. Exactly. Exactly. And Nausicaa is the messiah that will lead you down those happy fun times. Listen to every word she says because she is Jesus. Praise Nausicaa. The, the man in blue is basically a metaphor for Jesus. She, Nausicaa is Jesus. She is perfect. She can do no wrong. Uh, everything, all the problems, the evils in the world will be solved because of her. <laughs> in the context of this film. The manga is a lot different. Who's pleasing to believe that Miyazaki was like, you know, all this drug <laughs> subtext, you know, I, 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 maybe I shouldn't write something that isn't a, going to get kids addicted to drugs. Oh my I should just write a cool story with interesting ideas. So the manga goes a lot deeper into Nausicaa's character. She's not quite as perfect. She's not really a messiah figure. A lot of the characters are more fleshed out in the manga, whereas they are a lot simpler in this film. I think that Kushana, the, who is the antagonist of the film, the princess of Tomikia, 
she is a way better character in the manga because she has way more motivation and backstory with her relationship with her, you know, the royal family, her brothers and stuff, and her, mm-hmm. like, uh, attempts to, like, reclaim the throne there. So, like, she gets a lot more development. So does her lackey, Korotoa, who's, like, you know, duplicitous nature. It's, like, played for a laughs in this film, <laughs> but it doesn't really go anywhere. But it, it does more. He does more in the manga. Hmm. Uh, Asbel also just, like, comes in pretty quick. In, uh, not quick, actually, comes in really late into the film. He's the pilot guy, right? Yeah. So he doesn't really have much to do. Even you know, even though like he's a main character of the manga too, so, mm-hmm. and so like all the the manga is like a more like fleshed out version of the story, just like how the Akira manga is more fleshed out version of Akira. I highly recommend that. But this film is still really good, really beautifully made, and I just has I, even though Nausicaa is kind of a messiah character and she is presented as really perfect character. She's just so likable, you know? Mm. I really get behind her and like when she's in pain and when, when she's crying, I'm, fe- I'm right there with her. Like, she might be a little preachy about like, oh, uh, don't, don't destroy the environment, but you know, she's kind of right, so. She's like early Benajer in Gundam Unicorn. Sure, I know who that is. He, he's the main character of Gundam Unicorn. The brown-skinned, white-haired guy? He's the what? No, he's the I'm guy with... Iron-blooded orphan, sorry. Yeah, Unicorn, Benajer, he's like the guy with like the brownish hair. So he's like the Amuro Sandin in that Yeah. He sort of looks like an Amuro. Except he's not really like Amuro, he's like very like anti... Right, but he looks or... like him. I guess sort of. Amuro has like a bit more lighter hair color. This is... Amuro's hair is more like red or orange. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you watch Gundam, Sid? Well, Why don't you watch more Gundam? I did get the DVD for uh, a Unicorn, so I'll watch that. Unicorn is good. But this has nothing to do with Gundam, Nausicaa. I mean, there's... Except... Uh... Well, no, this doesn't have anything to do with Gundam. But, like, <laughs> Hideakiano was an animator on this film. So, you can, you can see from, like, how the... A God Warriors attacks. You can see some uh, prototypes for like Ava Unit One. Yeah, uh, that felt very reminiscent of that. In that in that show. So yeah, you can. It's very interesting to look at this film and see like how uh, you know the animators and the crew who worked on this film would develop in later Ghibli films and beyond Ghibli as well. But. This was a pretty interesting experience, not just to notice all the effects of the drug, but just, you know, the, to <laughs> just enjoy the surface story. Because the surface <laughs> story is just so cool. Oh, like, God. the world in Nausicaa is, like, really cool. Like, the toxic forest is beautiful. The Omu and all the bug creatures are just such great designs. And the Omu, like, can, are such a great design because they can be terrifying in one scene and they can be majestic and awe-inspiring in another. There's just some beautiful colors, especially, like, shades of blues and the contrast between blue and red. That's the scene where the Omu are charging with their red eyes in the night. Yeah. Haunting, haunting, as is when the uh, fire warrior is blasting his firebread and, like, shooting all the... You know, that's, like, a horrifying scene, and the colors sell it so well. Yeah, I mean... Like, this film is beautiful. I mean, in terms of the color scheme, you can tell there's, like, this clear, like, distinction between, like, red and blue. 
Yeah. Like, when, like, uh, the Nomu, no, not Nomu, what are they called? The caterpillar things. Oh, uh, Omu. Oh, okay. You're getting <laughs> confused with the things from MHA. I guess they sort of look like, <laughs> they're uh, both, like, blackish. I guess. The Omu are like gray. Are they? They okay. are. I just saw this movie today. Uh, I don't know. You know yeah. They're not that dissimilar in the manga, though, in terms of like how they were created, I guess. Okay, so, anyways, um, I guess like when you when you see like the eyes of like the Omu turning red, it kind of is like kind of symbolizing this whole like war and chaos, but then like when they turn blue, it's more of like a calm and peaceful type thing. And you can even see this in Nasca's dress at the end. Because Nasuka's wearing this red dress, like, in the final scenes. And then when the Omu revive Nasuka, the dress turns blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, like, this interesting touch. Yeah. It is really, really great stuff. And uh, even though the thematic messages about the environmentalist messages are on the nose, you know, they're good messages. Yeah. But I could tell that, and this is to tie back into our theater experience, because we keep forgetting to do that sometimes. Yeah. Is that the adults in the audience, whenever, like, the movie was on the nose of when Nausicaa was saying, uh, don't kill people, don't burn the forest, that's bad, humans are responsible for all the bad, like, people were rolling their eyes. There's this one guy who groaned at the end when, like, the, the Obaba comes to the realization that Nausicaa is the man in blue that will, like, that will save them all. That uh, who is who is uh, destined to lead everyone into peace. So that that was like, oh, she's in the side. Oh, oh all eyes. I mean, everyone knew that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could predict that. But... She wears even without the dress. She's always like her normal suit's blue. Yeah. So like, just put two and two together there. Yeah, that doesn't bother me though. I mean, yeah. as an adult, you can kind of notice like, okay, this is a little on the nose. You could be a little subtler, and if you read the manga especially, you could see that Miyazaki was a lot more thoughtful with the message, and it wasn't just as simple. Oh, Nausicaa's Nasaya, and there will be peace now. She did this <laughs> one sacrifice, and everything will be better. It's a lot more complicated, and in the manga, and it requires more people to make sacrifices. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I still really love the movie for just like the for its beautiful world, for the well characterized characters, even if they're not as strongly developed as in the manga. Yeah. I mean, I I can kind of see, like, one of my friends thinks this film's preachy, which I disagree with. It's yeah. not really preachy. But I kind of feel like they are a bit more, like, straightforward about the environmental message. Mm-hmm. Which, I guess, compared to, say, like, uh, Castle in the Sky. I feel Castle in the Sky, up until, like, around the very end, where they start, like, actually straightforwardly addressing it, yeah. is a lot more subtle about it. Yeah, Castle in the Sky is a little more refined compared yeah. to this movie. In C- Castle in the Sky does a very good job being set up to, like, the very end, where, like, the main two kids are just, like, straight up talking about the theme of the movie to the villain. Yeah, so the message isn't great and all, but there's just so much more to enjoy to the movie, and actually seeing it on the big screen is quite the experience. Yeah, like, definitely. Like, it is beautiful to look at, and, like, seeing it on the big screen allows you to take in every detail. Mm. And, man, this movie really is effective in, like, grabbing you, 
into the intensity of every scene, into, like, the dread of the inevitable, like, destruction and death that's gonna come. Like, you really, like, feel for Nausicaa and, like, feel, like, scared for the characters, like, in life-threatening situations. Like, it is intense, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, there are... The kids in the audience who went, no, when, like, Nausicaa <laughs> <Yeah>. got shot. <laughs> and so, like, I, I, kids were in the audience were really getting into Nausicaa. Yeah. And, like, I think there was one, the kid, I think there was, like, one kid crying in, like, one of the rows. I think, yeah, when Nausicaa was seemingly dead. Yeah. There were some sobs I heard. So this movie really works because it can make you forget you're watching a movie and an animated movie of that and like feel, oh my god, is this character, I'm, I'm feeling scared for this character. I'm feeling the dread. It's like, oh, is something gonna happen? Oh, that looks painful. That looks mm. painful. Like this movie really is great at conveying pain and like, uh, all the like, uh, intensity. Yeah. In a situation. It really like goes... Like, the f forest burning down. Like, you can feel like, oh man, this is really uh intense thing that's going on. This is really something that we gotta... Uh, uh, th th that's, like, worrying. When the warrior is revived and treating a nomu and they only uh, and they'll explode. <laughs> it's like, holy crap, that is dark, that's frightening, that's... I feel... I feel uncomfortable. It's like in Shin Godzilla. Yeah. You know, you were seeing that scene where Godzilla's destroying Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. Like, in the audience of Shin Godzilla, people were getting up and clapping and, yeah, yeah, Godzilla, but, Screw but those for people. me, like, in that scene, in this scene where, like, the fire warrior is destroying the no Omu, I'm just like, oh my god, this is horrifying. Now, the warrior kind of doesn't pan out in this film. Like, it's given a lot of setup, and it does, like, this one thing, but then it just dies. Does the, no like, like, does the Omu do... Not the Omu, the Warrior do more in the manga? Yeah. Yeah, it's... It becomes more of a problem. Do they have to do giant attack on Titan-style warrior fights? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think, if I remember correctly, that Na Nausicaa, like, befriends the warrior, and they go off somewhere. So... It was, that was interesting. I really need to reread the manga. But it mm. is, like, a lot more subtle and a lot more satisfying in terms of some of these narrative treads and how they play out. Yeah, I, I need to read the manga, too. And it's still in print through Viz Media in a right-to-left release, unlike the old release, which is left-to-right. Re... Yes. Yeah. I, I need to buy that. I think it's, like, 50 bucks. Yeah. I do mean to get that, because I really do... Like, I really like that manga. I really do think I need to give it a reread. So, we saw the dub of this movie, which I think it's my first time hearing it, and at first I was like, hmm, I'm not sure about this, but then as the movie went on, I was like, yeah, this is pretty good dub. Patrick Stewart as Yupa in particular was, like, so good. Like, he sold every moment he was in. Uh, and then... Wait, Patrick Stewart was Lord Yupa? Yeah. Oh. Huh. And basically everyone who was in the movie was pretty good. Uh, Shia LaBeouf as Asbel was probably the weakest one. Sh Shia LaBeouf was Asbel? Yeah, Shia LaBeouf was Asbel. Because this dub was made in 2005. Oh. Uh, and, you know, interestingly enough, they when this movie was originally brought over to the U.S. by New World Pictures in 1985, it was 
called Warriors of the Wind. It was heavily butchered to be marketed as a children's adventure film. Character names were changed, and a lot of plot details were changed. Is this the one that Miyazaki, like, shipped the sword to the guys? No, it's be- but it's because of this butchered version that Miyazaki adopted that strict no-edits clause for his other films. And when he heard that Princess Mononoke was going to be edited in a similar way, that's wh- why... he they got sent the katana with the message <laughs> no cuts. So, like, the, the original release of Nazca in the U.S. was what has made companies, like, have to stick very faithfully to the films and the related media surrounding Miyazaki's films. Or else Miyazaki will come to your house with the samurai sword and, like, cut you up. I mean, he'll threaten to do that. And he has, who knows if he's actually done that? He, he's covered it up. They'll, yeah. they'll never catch him. Sure. So, I don't know if this dub, how it compares to the sub necessarily. Uh, it's hard to say. I definitely think I still prefer the sub, but like, <laughs> Patrick Stewart as Yupa alone is making me question it because he was so good. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Rewatching Nausicaa just makes me want them to readapt Nausicaa, like as a TV series. Where's our Nausicaa TV series? Yeah, Ghibli, a... you could have done this without Miyazaki. It would have been easy monies. Sure. I mean, I think they need his permission since he wrote the original. I, I, I think he'd probably let them, right? I guess. Maybe? I don't know. I mean, I just would really like that full story to be adapted. I mean, the movie is amazing. I think it's still one of my favorite anime movies. Yeah. I would say the same for Akira, but with both, like, those original manga, I just think have just such more interesting stories than what the films could do with them. Yeah, for sure. And I think that if they were adapted into TV series, I would just allow those stories to be told in full, and they would make for probably some of the best anime shows ever if they're done well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm sure there's probably been talks about it before, but it's just getting the thing greenlit. Like, I think even a few years back, we heard about like Studios and Otomo being interested in making a Akira TV anime, but we just don't hear about the stuff. Probably because a combination of the cost of the licensing of the property, mm-hmm. and then actually adapting it in a way that'll satisfy everyone involved. Which, mm-hmm. for, like, big titular things like Akira and Nausicaa are really hard, because they have to be perfect. Like, mm-hmm. it's not gonna ma- get made unless it's perfect. Yeah, well, hopefully, even if it Miyazaki himself needs to direct a TV series for it, it can get me. Or a seven-film, like, Nausicaa series, like... One film for each volume or something. Mm-hmm. I guess one thing that I didn't realize, but just thinking about it, the difference between the dub and sub is that the presentation of Nausicaa as a messiah figure is more of a dub thing in the sense that they present her more as a Christ analog in the dub because of the language used than in the Japanese when that language of like savior or messiah and like the way things are described are not used in that same context. So that would be an interesting name to dig deeper into the double requirement to like rewatch full versions and compare them, write an essay and all that. Mm. But that's something that I would love someone to like really dig into. 
like yeah, a video essay or just a regular like essay in general. I'm sure someone already has. To the internets. Yeah. This is, of course, a classic movie. Yeah, the subtext of keeping the environment healthy so you can grow more weed and get high <laughs> aside. But it's still a great movie, even though some of the message is on the nose. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I enjoyed this. And I guess next time, we'll have to jump forward about 20 years to talk about Spirited Away and how that fits into all this. Oh, that's a very easy sure answer. But we'll have to just see. Spirited Away Miyazaki's most popular movie the one that made Studio Ghibli's films mainstream worldwide, helping spread Miyazaki's drug-dealing, child-trafficking business across borders. This was the big one. We knew if we could expose the world of propaganda beneath the surface of this film, we'd be able to spread the truth and save the children of the world from Miyazaki's megalomaniacal machinations. So as scared as we were, we recorded our thoughts. And now, for the first time ever, it's time to expose the evils hidden inside the so-called best animated picture of 2001, Spirited Away. Welcome back to Manga Mavericks at Movies, a show where we talk smack about movies Except and unravel the conspiracy behind Hayao Miyazaki's filmography. And today, we come to his magnum opus, Spirited Away. It's pretty easy to see the drug theme in here. It's just like right there. The propaganda in this movie is astonishing. This is Miyazaki's masterpiece, not just because of the movie's quality, but because of what he achieved with it. The only anime film to win an Academy Award. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture at the 75th Academy Awards in 2001. It's also the only hand-drawn animated film to win Best Animated Film. That's kind of sad. I mean, Beauty and the Beast won actual Best Picture back in 1994 or whatever. So it's not like the only animated film to get an Oscar. But, you know. I remember the good old days when animation was treated fairly by the Academy. Oh, wait, it was never treated fairly. They suck. Fuck the Academy. I mean, Beauty and the Beast actually won the Academy Award. Yes, but ever since Beauty and the Beast... They've hated the animators, and they're racist, and won't choose anything that isn't American. Even if it's better than the American choices. Well, the reason <laughs> it was able to win anyway is because Miyazaki teamed up with Lasseter, who is a fan of his, and they supervised an English-language version for North American film release distributed by Disney. So Disney got... Full push behind this movie, and that's how it won the Academy Award. The power of white privilege. Now, I don't even know what 
this meme has to do with this movie. Keep your memes <laughs> out of Spirit Away, which is a beautiful masterpiece that has touched generations and also has brainwashed them with its subliminal messages of vegetarianism and doing drugs. Yeah. It's very obvious to see the illusions here about anti-greed and anti-establishment because the movie begins with Shahira and her parents visiting the new place that they're going to live and then they take a wrong exit and then they, they come upon the shrine and then they enter the magical world and Shahira's parents become pigs because they are greedy but specifically because they eat a lot of meat. Notice in this movie that all the greedy characters eat meat and they become into animals or they become hunted down and eaten by the no-face because they love meat so much. This movie is anti-meat eating. This movie is promoting the vegetarian lifestyle on your children, which is admittedly not that bad a thing, but still... <laughs> brainwashing propaganda. Yeah, and we all know Chihiro is high on drugs. This ties in to the larger theme of the uh, like the big scene in the movie when Chihiro is washing the river spirit, right? The What has poisoned the river spirit, we lord? Garbage. Garbage made by man. Then they have to cleanse it out of him. Man is defiling the river, we lord. Man is the reason <laughs> why Haku couldn't remember his name because they destroyed his home, we lord. Man is polluting the environment and causing pain and destruction to all of nature's creatures and our spiritual beings. And that is why we are being punished and turned into pigs and eaten by Yubaba and the spirits as punishment. And also, the gift that the river spirit gives to Hiro is green and a ball. <laughs> it's weed, we lord. So Miyazaki is telling you, hey, Guys, let's live in peace with the earth and the spirits. Let's not pollute. Let's just all be happy, calm down, take some weed to calm our nerves. What does Jihiro do to solve the illnesses of Haku and No-Face, we lord? She feeds them the weed given to her by the river spirit. How does Haku's wounds heal? And he, how does he cough up his poisons in his body? Weed. How does No Face throw up all the bad food that is, he has eaten that has poisoned him? Weed. Weed. Miyazaki is promoting drugs through this movie in such a blatant way? Oh, it's astonishing. It was all there right in front of us. I saw this movie last year, just last year on the big screen, and I didn't notice it then. But through the process of uncovering this conspiracy these last few months, my eyes were blown open 
and I saw the world of Miyazaki's Spirited Way for what it really is. An allegory for how we are polluting our environment and how our consumption of utter life is causing us to become monsters and we need to cleanse ourselves of toxins and all the bad stuff we are eating and live in peace with the earth and the spirits and consume Miyazaki's drugs in order to pacify our nerves and be healthy and peaceful. <laughs> Wouldn't smoking weed also pollute the environment, though? See, it's not... That's why it's called propaganda, V-Lord. <laughs> because it's not truthful, V-Lord. Though I guess they're consuming the weed, so there's no smoke? So, I don't know. I guess eating the weed is okay, but it's not okay to smoke the weed? I, I don't know. Miyazaki works in complicated ways. Yes. So we uncovered the conspiracy behind the movie, unless you found more details. So I guess we'll cover the surface-level story <laughs> of Spirited Away. I guess we'll start with our theater experience, and oh man, how saddening was it that this theater was full, Relord, a packed house, so many young nines and families brainwashed. Yeah, there was a lot of, like... Young children in the theater, which I'm guessing, like, Spirit Away is a pretty well-known film. So I'm guessing a lot of normies brought their children along to watch it. We almost didn't get a seat because it was so full up and we bought the tickets only a day before. Yeah, I, I was underestimated how popular Spirit Away would be. Yeah, we had seats in the second to front row. So, pretty close to the screen, but of course, as the movie goes on, you don't notice it as much. You get immersed in the experience, yeah. which is what they want. So, there was a family that sat next to us, and the most notable thing about them is that the dad kept snoring throughout the movie. Was he, kept he falling snoring? Asleep. Yeah, he was falling asleep. He was snoring. I guess he was working late the other night or something. I don't know why he didn't just stay at home and gotten some rest instead of coming to the movie and snoring through the movie. Yeah, because wasn't the mother of the kid there also? Sorry. Yeah, the mom was there, so I don't know why he came too. I guess just for it to be a family outing. And the kid was making noises throughout the movie. I don't know. He was very excitable. The biggest thing I noticed was... At the end of the movie... He kept, like, randomly flailing. I'm just like, what is he doing? Specifically, it was the moment when Chihiro recognized that none of the pigs were her parents. Like, at that moment, the kid was, like, jumping up in his seat and he's flailing his arms around. I had no clue if it was out of frustration or out of joy. It was very entertaining, though, to see a child (laughs) so invested in the movie. I guess. I was just like, is that kid okay? He's just like flailing there. Yeah. But there were a lot of families. It was a packed house. And yeah, so (laughs) this movie is doing very well, even though it just was in theaters last year. Yeah. I think like whenever you show Spirit Away, people will come. Yeah. And before we even started the actual movie, they of course did a Ghibli short. Or a Mini Fest short, a G Kids Mini Fest short, and they chose a short called Metopolis, which 
featured a bunch of Greek characters in kind of a modern-day setting. And so it was about a little kid called Mino, who is a Minotaurus, and his mom, who was a Medusa. And basically, little Mino doesn't like all the boyfriends his mom brings home. So he causes trouble with his three-headed rat. And uh, they get one of the first boyfriend that we see turned into stone because he's about to spank Mino for being naughty and his mom's not having any of that. So she takes off her glasses and turns him to stone. And then she drags him down the stairs to the room where all the other boyfriends she has turned to stone on. She's like a fucking so, serial killer. I guess. It's she's like, I don't know. I guess, are they being killed when they turn to stone? Can't she, like, turn them back? I guess not. So the second half of the short then is they have a string of wool that helps Mino find his way home while he's left off at school because his mother works late and stuff. But the string gets cut and taken away by this human-faced bird. So he doesn't find his way Oh, it doesn't, he, so when he goes back out of the school, he, like, the string is cut, and he sees another string, which is made from the wool of this Cyclops guy's sheep, which had caught on a fence, and so he follows that instead, and that takes them far from home, but he finds the Cyclops guy, who helps him try and find his mom, and eventually they reunite, and because the little Minotaur kid likes the Cyclops guy, he draws a picture of him and his mother and the Cyclops guy all having fun together, you know, trying to ship them. So then <laughs> they start dating, and they go on family outings with little Mino, and it all seems really happy, but then the film ends on a weird, awkward note where, like, after they put Mino to dead, like, Cyclops guy and... Medusa are low to the dining table and they have some coffee and chocolate milk and they just like are like very awkwardly <laughs> st- sitting at the table like they don't know what to do. So that was kind of a weird way to end the short. But it was a really great short. Like I really loved the childlike color aesthetic of it. Like it was very crayon colored pencil-y lines. The outlines are very marker-esque and very chalk-esque, too. Actually, that would be more apt. Like, it felt like childlike drawings, and it was very charming, really great aesthetic. And I like the idea of a metropolis filled with mythical monsters, basically. It's up there, normal people, I guess. And there are a lot of... uh. A lot of Easter eggs of different types of Greek creatures in there. It was really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Definitely. Um, I kind of wonder, does like, do you kids have like a list of all the shorts that they have licensed somewhere? I think they just license really interesting shorts to show them in theaters. Yeah, but like, do they have like a list of the, all the ones that they have licensed? Like, I don't know if they have like exclusive distribution rights. They just have uh-huh. rights to show them in theaters, I guess. Because they have been enjoying a lot of really cool ones, so it's yeah. like, uh, I wonder I wonder where they're getting them all from. Yeah, but Mythopolis, 
Really great short. I would recommend you check it out. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's and obviously, really you should watch Spirit Away because beyond the conspiracy part, it's a really great movie. There's a reason why this movie is considered a masterpiece by so many. Why it won an Academy Award is because it is absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Like, the entire setting of the town, of the bat place is beautiful. The bat house itself is beautiful. All the visual imagery is just so striking. And seeing all these Japanese yokai, mythical monsters, they're wonderfully designed. And especially for those of us who are not familiar with these creatures, they're just so fantastical away that we usually don't experience. And of course, you know, it's, you get more involved with this kind of stuff, yokai fiction, you recognize them more, but still really creatively invented creatures like Kamaji, the spider yokai. He's still incredible in how he works in the boiler room with his multiple arms and he doesn't even have to look when he's reaching for his herbs that he grabs to, you know, mix into the bot water and all those mm. shells and behind him in the room and stuff out at the side of his workstation and all of that. Like, it's very striking. And everything is constantly moving in this movie, too, which is mm. really incredible. And it's just a good uh, coming-of-age story. Basically, Chihiro is a scaredy cat, a little selfish, and she learns... To become responsible, take charge, and not be afraid of standing up for herself. Like, at the end, she stands up to Yubaba, not scared, confident, and she gets her parents back. Yay. Yeah, I agree with all the points you said. Yeah, like, th this movie, for me, it just looks beautiful. Like, if you compare it to, like, even movies, you know, Ghibli movies that came out before this... It's like another step up. They really, like, hit this hard in terms of animation. Like, it just flows just perfectly. Like, in, like, every unique, like, different, like, creature and stuff just has this whole unique movements to them. And it's just so cool. Yeah, I mean, narratively, like you said, it is a coming of age story. Personally, I feel like, I know a lot of people consider Spirit Away, like, the best, like, Miyazaki film or best Ghibli film. And I kinda have to disagree. Because narratively, it's pretty strong in, like, the first, like, two-thirds. But I feel in the last third, it just kind of, like, muddles around and kind of just, like, winds down in, like, a more disappointing way. I completely disagree because I don't understand that perspective. I think it is all incredibly well-paced and cohesive in terms of its team and matted. Well, yeah, it's cohesive. But at the same time, it feels like the stakes kind of just die at how do the stakes die? At the end of the movie, at the climax, first of all, is when Chihiro manages to sedate No-Face by feeding him the herb she got from the river spirit. And then he starts throwing up, and then she leads him out while, uh, you know, he throws up everyone he ate. And then, basically, you know, they have to go to... Zenibas to undo the curses and stuff. 
Except, like, the curse on Haku's, like, already gone at that right. point. Right, and that's what's brilliant, is because Chihiro already solved the problem. So... <laughs> makes an entire last portion. No! Because... It also, like, paints, like, a... It's not the what she accomplished. It's, it's just the fact that she goes on the journey that's impressive. It's not that she gets something out of the journey. It's the fact that she goes the extra mile to save her friends. Yeah, but she'd already saved Haku, so... Right, but she didn't know that she had already saved Haku. Okay, like, my other problem with this is that the whole, like, thing with, like, Chihiro and her family having me able to go home, the whole negotiation with Haku and, like, uh, Ayaba or whatever, like, it just feels, like, too simplified. Like, Haku basically just lies to her, saying that her twin sister has, like, her baby... When she doesn't, and then, like... she does, because the baby was turned into the mouse, and the mouse went with Chihiro to Zaniba. It's not like the baby's being held hostage, though. It's like... Right, but Haku is trust trying to manipulate uh, Yubaba into letting Chihiro go. I don't know, it just feels like such a... So he's telling him her lies in order to, you know... It feels like such a simplified I mean, half solution. Truth, because it is a half-truth. It feels like such a simplified solution, though. No, it isn't. It's it, fine. It is. Because it's not like, oh, Yubaba agrees and that's it. It's that Yubaba agrees on the condition that Jahiro prove herself one last time in something that was built up throughout the movie that she needed to remember which pigs were her parents. Like, that. that part's good. I like that part. But I just feel that whole, like, resolute, like, the whole, like, negotiation up to that, getting to that point just feels kind of, I don't know, like, compared to the stakes early in the movie, it just doesn't feel as comparable. Like, I kind of wonder what Haku initially planned to do to get Chihiro to be able to go home. Because I doubt it was like, oh, get, get, like, the baby as a hostage or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know, like, it just feels, like, too convenient of a solution. What was your, what was your point? <laughs> My point was that the the actual solution to get to the, like, negotiation of Chihiro going, oh, just seems, like, too convenient and too low stakes compared to, like, the actual stakes that were there before. Well, how, so how are the stakes lower than before? Okay, so, like... Because the whole point is Chihiro needs to get her parents back. That's the stakes. Because, like, it's just, like, okay, Haku tells, like, tells, like, uh... I keep forgetting... Yubaba. Yubaba, yeah, you... You want to say Yaba from JoJo? <laughs> she kind of looks she, like... Yeah. Yeah, Yubaba. She, like, Haku just lies to Yubaba saying that her twin sister has, like, her baby, and that she's like, okay, yeah, we can do this negotiation. Chihiro can go home. Which, like, just feels like such a, like, I don't know, a convenient solution. Like, I, Haku, I doubt Haku planned this out so that, like, they'd get, uh, get her baby and then, like, negotiate to get Chihiro home. It just feels like, oh, okay, this convenient solution came along and then Haku just uses it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess I see the point in the sense that Haku solves part of Chihiro's problem for her. 
But at the same time, he only is able to do that because Shahira saved his life. Yeah, and I like that part. That part's fine. It's just, like, the actual solution there just feels way too convenient. I would have much rather had Chihiro gets that negotiation. Like, she's the one who negotiates with, uh, I can't, I forgot her name, man. Obaba? Yubaba. Yubaba? <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. Yubaba. Like, Chihiro negotiates with Yubaba to make her, let her and her parents go home. Instead of Haku doing it for her. My other issue is, like, also the whole reveal of, like, Haku being, like, the spirit of the lake that... Yeah, okay, that's the one thing, is that it kind of has one hint before, and then it just gets expo-dumped. Like, Like, where where was that hint, though? Like It was just before when she was writing or touching Haku, she remembered... Some vision of the past where wasn't that right before like that was like when Haku was bloodied and confused and was just and they were falling through the bathhouse into the boiler room. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So that was like the one scene we get a hint at it. Oh, that was their past connection. Yeah, which I mean, okay, that's a little bit. Again, there, Lord, but, like, that has to do about the environmentalist message of the movie. <laughs> like, are, are you being serious? Yeah, because okay. the whole point is that, oh, humans build on top of the river, so everyone forgot the river, including the river spirit itself. Yeah, that that makes sense. Humans destroy the river, the river no longer exists, so that's why Haku couldn't remember his name. But Chihiro yeah. remembered the river... And so she was able to say the name, and that helped Koaku remember his own name. Yeah, and, and that's a good message, and that, I like that. But at the same time, I feel like they should have foreshadowed this at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe show, like, the scene where, like, uh, Chihiro's, like, drowning or something. Yeah, if the movie had shown earlier the scene where she was in the river... And Kohaku saved her, that would have been good. I mean, it would kind of spoiled it when they met up again, I guess? I don't know, but... I don't think it would have really spoiled it. Just like, set up earlier yeah. this whole Kohaku River thing. Yeah, I mean, and this just comes back to the whole thing. Like, people say this film is like the best Miyazaki film. And I'd, I'd say that on the terms of the theme. The theme is so relatable for all ages. It's about fears in the coming of age. That's great. But at the same time, if you look at the narrative and compare it to, say, like Miyazaki's other films, like The Wind Rises, or even, I'd say, Laputa, The Castle in the Sky, I feel those films had much stronger stories. Like, the core stories were a lot better, like, a lot more, I guess, like, concretely written. Which I feel in Spirit Away, Spirit Away can get a, get away with a lot of, like, more, like, I guess, convenient kind of storytelling because it's kind of a representation of, I guess, Jihiro's own mind in a way as well. And her coming to terms with her home, like, personal challenges. But even then, like, I, I feel like the narratives of, like, The Wind Rises and other films like Lapidar are a lot better in the narrative aspect. That's all well and good, but I think what makes this movie stand out 
and Resonate is such a classic is that the world is just so brilliantly realized and fantastic and fleshed out. And also that it's just a really great core team of coming of age and environmentalism and don't be greedy and all that stuff. As well as there's just some incredible balance between the different tones of humor and horror and adventure and action. Like the movie has everything in a way that I think not a whole lot of them do. The Miyazaki canon, the Ghibli canon. Because a lot of Ghibli films are very slice of life. Yeah, that's true. So this is one of the ones that matches to find the perfect middle ground between a great adventure story and a more down-to-dirt character story. But I think, yeah, at the end of the day, that's why it has such like a strong, large fan base, because it has a little bit for everyone, and it's such a relatable like film in terms of its theme and its presentation is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what captivates children the world over. Yeah, this, this is why parents world. like. This is why parents still show their kids Spirited Away because mm-hmm. it is such a unique film, and like people have been exposed at this point. It's just become a part of popular culture. Like, well, I don't know if it's that. I mean, okay, it's I, know, I, I know, popular. I know, like I, mean, I know, like normal kids in like high school, middle school. Who would always talk about Spirit Away, and they they would give like zero shits about anime, but they love Spirit Away. Sure, I mean there's a lot of Miyazaki films like that. Yeah, but I feel like Spirit Away, compared to say like your Nausicaas or your Lapitas, are is just like I feel a lot more ingrained yeah. in that it just has a much larger wide like a much larger and wider appeal. I mean Spirit Away and Totoro, those are the big yeah. two that. But yeah. this is probably the more widely recognized, critically acclaimed I mean all of them are like, critically acclaimed except for Earthsea, but Earthsea wasn't uh Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah, that was, was Goro. Son. Goro, you fucked up. Hiyazaki said as much to him. Like, he said <laughs> it's, you know, it's good that he made one film. And with that he should stop. That's yeah. literally what he said. And then he went and directed... Uh, Poppy Hill, which was a very good Poppy film. Hill. He directed Poppy Hill, but he also directed uh, Ron and the Robbers Are, that TV series. And that was good. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Anyway, this was a great experience seeing this movie. Glad that the audience seemed to turn out for it and enjoy it. It's just too bad they were brainwashed by the movie's messages of vegetarianism and anti-consumerism. I mean, okay, those aren't bad things. The bad thing is the fact that it's promoting the drug lifestyle on the children. That's what Miyazaki's conspiracy is. I wonder how many people would get this joke. Like, I don't know. What do you mean? They've been following (laughs) our process through the last couple of episodes. I don't know. And what now we're finally at the precipice, the conclusion of our long-standing expose of the Miyazaki conspiracy. You mean we Howl's only Moving have... Castle? Yeah, that's the last one. 
That's the one we're just about to do, and with that, we'll finally put the nail in the coffin on this lineage. I have been going through the rest of the Ghibli canon in order to piece together all the missing pieces, because we all, of course, had only seen the movies that were being shown in theaters by G-Kids. We needed to piece together the timeline by watching them all in order, so that's what I have been doing, and with the next segment, you people at home will finally get the full story of the Ghibli conspiracy. Yeah. And the and <laughs> how Miyazaki has been brainwashing you into doing his drugs for the last three decades. And he just won't stop. He keeps continuing. We're sorry. And we won't stop. We won't stop. Right now, let's review House Moving Castle and put an end to this madness once and for all. On the behalf of Manga Mavericks at Movies, I apologize. We're sorry, Miyazaki. Please don't hunt us down to kill us. I'm not scared. I like Wind Rises. <laughs> Howl's Moving Castle was where it was all supposed to end. The culmination of this expose, the curtain call for this conspiracy... But alas, we never got to discuss that movie. The day after we recorded the Spirited Away review, I received a curious package on my front door. It was a large, long box that seemed to hold something fragile but dangerous inside. Verily, I opened up the box and discovered the disturbing gift hidden within. There was a long katana, unsheathed with a message attached to it. It smelled, and the ink was red and rough, and I realized this message had been written in blood, and it read, No. Cass. As in, No. Podcasts. I shuddered. None of the podcasts we recorded about the Ghibli conspiracy had been released yet. There was no way he could have known, and yet somehow... He's been watching, listening, waiting. We thought we were unraveling the truth, but all along we've been tied up by his strings at the mercy of Miyazaki, the puppet master. Fearing for my safety, I decided not to record a Howl's Moving Castle review. For good measure, I didn't release any more Act Movies podcasts after October for the rest of 2017, and didn't resume them in earnest until the May of 2018. But I still went to the movie. I watched it with a full house, an entire theater audience enjoying it, immersed in it, blissfully unaware that they were being maliciously manipulated by a maniacal mastermind. Months passed after that haunting experience. I decided in May of 2018 to take the risk of releasing the conspiracy episodes we recorded, creating Manga Mavericks at Movies Month on YouTube to disguise the reviews next to more innocuous reviews of random live action movies like Victoria and Abdul. Alas, they barely got any views, and it seemed like the Ghibli conspiracy would remain a secret forever and the minds of innocent children will continue to be corrupted until everyone was hooked on drugs and would only watch Ghibli movies all day. 
every day. That is, until something happened. Something strange. I recently received two free tickets to see the latest theatrical re-release of House of Wing Castle from G-Kids. It's true, I'd enter some of their giveaway contests on a whim to see if something might happen, but I never thought they would actually give me, someone on Miyazaki's enemies list, tickets to go see the film. For free! Perhaps there is someone at G-Kids who also wants to expose the truth. Perhaps it's time that this conspiracy be laid to rest once and for all. The consequences to myself be damned. So finally, after nearly a year and a half, we Lord and I will record that Howl's Moving Castle review. We will expose the last vestiges of this Ghibli conspiracy, reviewing all the films that will be shown in this year's Ghibli Fest that we haven't covered on this episode, peeling back every layer of Miyazaki's lies until the truth is laid bare for all the world to see. So I hope you will join us in our treacherous journeys to the sea of corruption that is the Ghibli filmography. But just in case I'm assassinated tomorrow, let me state this one more time for the record. My name is Lum Ramayasha. You can follow me on Twitter at Lum Ramayasha and find me in other places by that name. I write manga and movie reviews for allhcomic.com and wrote a review for the Fruits Basket remake anime that you can read right now. You can also support my work financially and help me keep fighting the Ghibli Conspiracy by donating to my Kofi at Kofi slash Lum Ramayasha. You can find WeLordGTZ at WeLordGTZ on Twitter and on other places by that name. He writes my reviews for all Dash Comic as well, and covering series such as Act Age, Demon Slayer, and Hinomaru Sumo. As for the show, you can follow Manga Mavericks on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks, on Tumblr at MangaMavericks.tumblr.com, and on YouTube at YouTube slash C slash Manga Mavericks. You can also join our Discord server, link in the description, and send us your thoughts and feedback to our email, mangamarics at gmail.com. You can find the podcast pretty much on any podcast platform of choice, like Stitcher and Spotify, and you would greatly appreciate if you would leave us a rating review and let us know how we're doing, and let us know your thoughts on this conspiracy that we've laid out for you here. But that does it for this episode. So until next time, if there is one, this has been Manga Mavericks at Movies, and I'll see you in the next one. Maybe. And... Cut.